The Bible reading this morning is from Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks, Adele. Well, you all look very clever. So can you name any theologians? Don't shout them out. Uh, Theology is just the study of the nature of God, right? And actually, all your friends are theologians. All your family are theologians. People at the shops, those people playing cricket, they're all theologians. Because everyone has things that they think they know about God, you know, whether God exists, and if he does exist, what he is or isn't like, or what he should be like or shouldn't be like. Everyone's a theologian. Well, the question is, are they getting God right? Have they got an accurate accurate view of God? Someone the other day was telling me, their son said to them, he said, and this is so Australian, me and God have an understanding. I don't bother him. And he doesn't bother me. Is that what God is like? Because I think the issue with people we're trying to reach with the good news about Jesus isn't generally that they don't believe in God at all. It's the kind of God that they believe in. Uh, My foster brother growing up, David, uh, is about my age, lovely bloke. uh, David had some learning and communication challenges. So he would often get phrases half right in a really amusing way. So he would say things like, oh, what's the end coming to? Instead of what's the world coming to? What's the end coming to? And instead of at your age, not your shoe size, he would say, at your shoe size. He'd get it nearly right, but slightly wrong. Oh, I've got some uh, memes here. Graham, thank you. This is people getting things. There's some truth in there somewhere, but it's all jumbled up and it's got it a little bit wrong. If you're into Star Trek or things like that, you'll know that. Um, Or Darth Vader. That doesn't really capture Darth Vader's essence. So true-ish things, but not quite right. And lots of people, whether they've thought about God a lot or hardly at all, get him wrong, or maybe half right. So, for example, people see God as irrelevant, utterly disconnected from daily life, something to dust off at weddings and baptisms and funerals, the three sprinklings. They see God as disinterested. In theory, he's capable of helping them, um, but he's just not all that interested in doing it. Or they perceive that God and church are only interested in good people. And for most people, God is not holy. He doesn't, most people don't think God hates sin. They think he's contractually obligated to be nice to them. And so they're pretty confident that he'll give them a free pass on the last day. 
So why worry about obeying him today? And even mature Christians who've been believers for donkey's years will tell you that still, from time to time, as they're reading the Bible, they realize that they've been getting God slightly wrong. But what does it matter? Should we really be all that bothered about it? Surely God is big enough to understand when we don't get him quite right. Well, it matters because getting God right and responding to him rightly brings us rest. Rest. It lines us up with what we were made for. True rest. Because at the heart of Christianity is a generous offer of grace. We saw it in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And if we get God wrong, we're in danger of missing out on that rest. Now, rest there doesn't mean doing nothing or recovering from being tired. Right at the start of the Bible in Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. So it's not like he had to lie down and have a cup of tea because he was worn out from all his creating. He's still sustaining creation right now. What, it, what that rest means is that he was enjoying his creation. He was enjoying sharing his goodness and his glory with us, blessing us in perfect relationship, peaceful relationship with him. We were wanting for nothing. We were oversupplied with everything we could ever dream of. So us and God together, basking in a job well done, done perfectly. But that wasn't good enough for us. And each of us rejects that relationship because it means submitting to God as God. And each in our own way show that we'd rather call the shots, even if they're rubbish in comparison. And so that's messed up the rest. That's made life hard and destroyed that peace. But Jesus is offering to restore that rest, to restore us to heaven and eternal life. And in this life full of sin, it's still going to be hard yakka. But the promise, that promise of eternal rest is ours if we throw our lot in with Jesus. And having that certain hope for the future changes everything about our present struggles and strife. Because the most important struggle our relationship with God and being with him has been brought to rest. Rest. For a Christian, that's our starting point. That's our state of being. State of being, not of doing. Of being all sorted out with God, all in harmony, all made whole. That's the rest that's on offer. And in today's passage, Jesus tells us how anyone, anyone can know what God is really like. And so anyone can know that rest. So there's an outline in your leaflet there, just three headings. And first of all, the gospel is pride proof. The gospel is pride proof. Uh, I think I mentioned this before. You know, on, on social media, you get ads usually for something you've just bought. You know, you've already, and you, you just skip past it because you think, I've got it, I don't need it. So the advertisers don't have to take steps to hide their ads from me. It's, inherently, it's got an inherent filter to make me ignore it. 
Well, the gospel, so it's shorthand for like the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. The gospel has a built-in pride filter. It's not those who assume themselves wise and clever about knowing God by their own assessment that actually know him. People who say, I don't need it, I've already got it. God hides the gospel from them with their own pride. It's those humble enough to be like children knowing their need of him. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So God has hidden these things. That these things there, that's all the ways in which God has made himself known. So, you know, mentioning no names, Sharon, sometimes when people tell me they don't know about something that's coming up at church, it's pretty evident they haven't read the weekly email. I'm sure that's none of you here. But um, in last week's passage, we saw that in Jesus... God has been doing the like all these miracles and stuff in Capernaum and Northern Galilee. God has been do, Jesus has been doing the equivalent of sending an email, sending a letter, sending a text, sending a kissogram, sending a carrier pigeon, doing a radio broadcast, turning up in person, having what he said transcribed, translated, put on a YouTube video, translated into every language. He's made himself obvious, obviously offering good news. Rescue, redemption, healing, calming storms, raising the dead. But none of that is the right answer for lots of people in that generation because it's not their answer. There's no pleasing those who consider themselves wise and learned about their relationship with God. Now, let's be clear, the wise and learned that um, Jesus is speaking against here is only that kind of being wise and learned about saving yourself that Jesus is having to go at. We need wise people. We need learned, intelligent people in society. We need clever people who are disciplined enough and talented enough to study hard and learn great reams of information and have huge portfolios of skills. Some jobs, some roles demand that. There's nothing wrong with being clever. But when it comes to knowing God, those clever people and the rest of us, we need the humility and acceptance of a child. So it's right for you all to expect me to have attempted to be wise and learned about this passage before I preach it to you. But it's also reasonable for you to expect me to be childlike enough to have the humility and submission to God to apply what it says to myself. So what does it look like to be one of the little children that Jesus talks about? Well, there were plenty of religious, clever religious blokes Jesus could have chosen, but he chose fishermen, a tax collector, tradies, because they followed him, trusting him, trusting like a child would. It's the difference between the Pharisee who lifts his eyes to heaven saying, oh Lord, I'm glad I'm not like them, And the tax collector who pounds his chest, oh Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, being childlike. It's the difference between the rich young ruler who walks away with a heavy heart and heavy pockets 
and rich Zacchaeus who opened his heart and demonstrated that by opening his pockets. Being childlike trust. It's the difference between self-reliant pride and humble dependence on God through depending on Jesus. So being like little children is not about switching your brain off or being gullible. It's about trust and acceptance. So in a functioning household, for example, children don't, they don't intellectualize about expecting dinner to be provided, do they? They don't, they don't have a philosophical angst about where they're going to sleep tonight in a functioning household. They don't, and they don't feel diminished by accepting all these freebies that you give them every day. That's just what happens. They just accept. They don't need to earn it. They don't need to coerce the parents into providing it. They trust, assuming care will be provided. Now, of course, there are homes where that doesn't happen, but the exception proves the rule, doesn't it? When that trust isn't honored, lives are damaged. Jesus can be trusted to not only show us God, but bring us to God. To make him make us God child like he is. So in our question about do we know what God is really like, a fundamental thing to know about him, what he is pleased to do, is to have people know him truly by humbly relying and trusting him. And this is grace, this is good news, because what would the alternative be? Working out for yourself would be the alternative. And actually, all the other religions and philosophies and things to live your life by offered up are exactly saying that, working out for yourself. What if you can't? Jesus is about what has been done for you, revealed to you, not done by you or worked out by you. Proverbs 3.34, God opposes, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's quoted twice in the New Testament as well. And later Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the question for all of us is, are you childlike enough to humbly confess your unworthiness, emptiness, and helplessness? Do you acknowledge that you are not good enough for God? Or has your education, wealth, power, position, talent, knowledge puffed you up? What would it look like for you to be a childlike before God? Don't switch off your brain, but do trust, accept, come in humility with nothing to offer. And together as church, that affects how we relate to each other. Because from what our world would call the lowliest to what our world would call the smartest, most capable, all of us at heart are just a bunch of kids reliant on trusting in God for true life. None of us are special enough to know the salvation we know. We're all overprivileged children. We're all spoiled, not rotten or spoiled to new life. So it makes a difference for our life together as church, and for our evangelism as we try and share Jesus. We can end up convincing ourselves that 
we're not good enough to articulate the gospel. We don't know the, a full gospel presentation. But actually, the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand. The gospel is like a cut diamond. Right? So we can keep studying it for the rest of our life and get to know different facets in more and more depth and detail. And that's a wonderful thing to do as we mature. But even a child knows to explain to you what a diamond is and what's so good about a diamond. A diamond's a diamond. The gospel is simple enough for children. But back to our question, right? Let's assume we do have found the humility to say we're totally dependent on God. How do we know that God? How do we know we're getting that God right and not just somebody we've made up? So our second heading, know Jesus no God. No Jesus, no God. Jesus is the center of how God makes himself known to us. Jesus is the center of how God makes himself known to us. So verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, Jesus is making some very big claims here. So let's break them down. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Um, Jesus will go on to say after his death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But for now, I think what Jesus is saying in context, everything you need to know about God, you can find out through me. Jesus is the difference between a biography, you know, something written about someone based on second or third hand observations, interpretations of what someone said. Difference between a biography and an autobiography coming straight from the horse's mouth. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament, they had word, words from God. Jesus is the word. Uh, next, he claims that he alone, as God the Son, is fully known and understood by God the Father. Uh, not only that, he alone fully knows and understands God the Father. So, sorry, God the Father alone fully knows the Son, and God the Son alone fully knows and understands the Father. So we can only know God the Father if Jesus, God the Son, chooses to reveal him to us. So as we read these verses, we're getting into God's Trinitarian nature, doctrine of the Trinity. If you, know, if you put all the things the Bible says about God together, we see there is one God who ex existed for all eternity in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there's lots we'll never understand about that, but the wrong response when we come across this idea of God being existing in Trinity, the wrong response is to go, Pfft. It's all a mystery. It's all a bit hard to understand, isn't it? Because there's lots we can know which help us to know God, help us to get God right. So let's see what we can know from these particular verses. Jesus is saying that he, in all history, in all the universe, he is uniquely qualified to show us who God really is because he really is God. He's not just bringing a message about God. He is the message. Every other historical biography is just a collection of true stories. 
But the gospel, because of who Jesus is, this true story is our good news message. This story becomes our message. Because if you know his story, trust in who he is, what he's done, you know God. Jesus says all things have been committed to him, and it's Jesus who chooses who he reveals the Father to. In other words, Jesus is the one through whom God the Father acts. We've learned that about God. Jesus is the one through whom God the Father acts. And that's an arrangement. That's, it's not a new thing. That was in place from the beginning. John 1 verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. We are created to bear God's image, which we do imperfectly, tainted by sin. And like, just in, in my family, for better or worse, we, we bear the images of our families. People who know my parents, know my siblings, can tell that I'm a tailor. Well, Jesus is fully known by the Father and fully knows the Father. And so he is the perfect image of him in a way that we could never be. Now, Hank has quite rightly pointed out to me that I've not here yet preached on the fatherhood of God. But we need to be careful not to play down what Jesus says here. We know the Father through the Son. So anything we think we know about God, well, we can check if we've got it right. We can hold it up, test it against Jesus to see if it's true. So, for example, that man who claimed that he and God had an understanding where God wouldn't bother him. If we hold that up to what Jesus says, it doesn't stack up, does it? It doesn't stack up against God turning up in person, in the flesh in Jesus, proactively, before we were ever asked him to come and be our Lord and Savior, making sure that we've got access to him, to his gospel through the Bible. And if that man measures himself up about who God does reveal himself to, well, he'll find himself in the same category as the wise and learned, who he probably rails against on a daily basis. But hang on a minute. Back in verse 25, 26, Jesus said God was pleased to hide himself from the wise and learned. And now Jesus says he chooses who he'll reveal the Father to. Now, why would God hide himself from anyone? Well, let's remember the gist of what Jesus is saying is that essentially people hide the gospel from themselves through prideful self-reliance, overcomplicating things and finding instead, in reality, finding God through Jesus is child's play. It's humanity that makes being saved more complicated than it is. And the reality is that all of us deserve punishment for the way we treat God and treat each other. It would be absolutely fair and just if no one were saved. That would be fair. But if Jesus gets to choose, why doesn't he just choose everyone? Well, it's almost like Jesus is anticipating that very objection with the next thing he says. And our next heading, everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. If Jesus 
was to choose everyone, he'd be going against his father's and therefore his own nature. The father is pleased to reveal who he is to those humble enough to acknowledge they need him. People who know they are weary and burdened. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So not everyone is chosen, but everyone is invited. Not everyone is chosen, but everyone is invited to come, come to me, take my yoke upon you. Notice Jesus doesn't say, go to God, but come to me. So one side we've got here is God's sovereignty. God is in control. Um, So for example, Romans 9, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And in our passage today, hiding himself from those um, he choose, who choose, um, sorry, showing himself to those Jesus chooses and hiding himself from the proud. Uh, the other side, that's God's sovereignty. God chooses, Jesus chooses. The other side of the coin is human responsibility. Jesus invites, come to me. So we've got God's responsibility and our responsibility both held together and Neither half, this is a quote from a commentator, neither half diminishes questions or exists without the other. They're both truths stand together. What we do know for sure is that humility opens the door to heaven and pride keeps it shut. So Jesus' invite is not to be positively disposed to him or his church. No, Jesus' invite is Come to me. Someone might say, I'm not into organized religion, but I am a spiritual person. I'm on a journey of discovery. Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say go to anyone. He says, come to me. And why? Because only he is the son of God. Only through him can we know God and his rest. He really is that exclusive. Jesus says, take my yoke. So a yoke was the big wooden bar fitted tightly to oxen with which they pulled a plow or whatever. But it was used figuratively of the law and of a body of teaching of a rabbi. And it had the sense of being closely bound to someone and their teaching, how they live life, going where they go taking their yoke upon you. And we'll see next week that the yoke of the religious leaders of the time had become heavier and heavier and heavier with rules for all the minutiae of life. You couldn't even grab a snack. All these rules without the power or help to actually successfully succeed in them. And that's where any other religion or secular way of seeing the world or any other philosophy leads us Burdened, weary. It's like um, on my social media again, because I'm an old timer who's joined a gym, you can probably tell. 
I keep getting ads for fitness programs, right? And all of them, they do the same thing. All of them say, don't fall for those burdensome fitness programs that weary you with a diet and loads of exercise. Use ours instead, they say. But you only have to scratch the surface a little bit to discover they want to burden you with lots of exercise and put you on a diet. They've just packaged it differently, use different words. Taking Jesus' yoke means cutting through all the rubbish. Knowing Jesus is knowing the truth, knowing God. So taking Jesus' yoke means clinging onto Jesus, getting to know him, going where he goes, trying to be like him with his Holy Spirit in us to empower us to actually do it. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Trusting and relying on Jesus is getting God right. And he gets us right with God. We have the promise of eternal rest, peace, joy, perfect relationship with God in a new heaven and earth. And that rest breaks into our day-to-day here and now. And we can have absolute clarity about who God is and what he's like as we stick with Jesus, as we throw a lot within him. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we forget ourselves... And live for Jesus with childlike trust in him. We discover true life. His yoke is easy and light because the world was made through Jesus and made for him. It's incomplete without him. Creation is designed to belong to Jesus. So taking his yoke is just lining up with the rub of creation. Jesus is integral to the story of this world. And as we take up his yoke, he brings us into his story. By his spirit, he makes us one with him, hidden in him, so that we too know God as our father. So that we too know rest. So what are you burdened and wearied by this morning? Now, I don't want to play down or dismiss your genuine distress. And you might be stuck with those things for ages. But with childlike trust in Jesus, taking up his yoke, you really do know God. And you can know his rest in and through all the burdens of life. Looking forward to that perfect rest when Jesus returns. Get God right by knowing Jesus and know his rest. I'll finish with verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray for anyone feeling the weight of that weariness and carrying burdens this morning. We ask Uh, for you to give them your rest. Give us your rest, Lord. Please help us to know you through knowing Jesus. Please take us ever deeper into the wonders of your gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done.
Amen.